founded in 1928 at Sewer de Mont Spring in Acadia National Park and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. This is Free Speech Radio News. Free Speech Radio News is the only daily half-hour progressive radio newscast in the U.S. It's owned and managed by news reporters. Free Speech Radio News is an independent broadcast news organization with over 200 journalists who report from 40 states within the U.S. and 57 countries from around the world. You can hear Free Speech Radio News weekday afternoons at 4.30 p.m. right after Jim Hightower commentaries, only on Community Radio WERU-FM. Support for WERU comes from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine and show, August 9th through the 11th in Rockland. Art, architecture, furniture, food, live music, and boats, boats, and more boats on the web at maineboats.com. The time is 10.05 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 90... 9.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today we have a special guest, novelist Christina Baker-Klein. I'm very happy to have her on the show, and I am honored that she's agreed to be here to talk about her latest novel, uh, Orphan Train. Uh, before I, I introduce uh, Christina to you, I'd just like to tell you a little bit about her background uh, and uh, so that you'll know just something about her. Uh, Christina Baker Klein is a novelist, nonfiction writer, and editor. In addition to Often Train, her novels include Bird in Hand, The Way Life Should Be, Desire Lines, and Sweetwater. She served as writer in residence at Fordham University from 2007 to 2011 and was on the staff editor and writing coach um, at the school networking site SheWrites.com. Uh, Christina is co-editor with Ann Burt of a collection of personal essays called About Face. Women write about what they see when they look in the mirror. She also uh, commissioned and edited two widely praised collections of original essays on the first year of parenthood and raising young children, Child of Mine and Room to Grow. She is co-author with her mother, Christina Luper Baker, of a book on feminism, feminist mothers and daughters. The conversation begins. Her essays, articles, and reviews have appeared in New York Times uh, Book Review, uh, the Yale Review, Southern Living, Ms. Parents, and Family Life, among other places. Christina is currently at work on a literature anthology for Facing History of Ourselves, and a novel based on the iconic painting, Christina's World, by Andrew Wyeth. Christina was born in Cambridge, England, and raised there as well as 
uh, in the American South and Maine. She's a graduate of Yale, Cambridge, uh, and the University of Virginia, where she was a, hope I pronounced this right, Henry Hoynes Fellow uh, in fiction writing. In addition to Fordham, she has taught fiction and nonfiction writing, poetry, English literature, literary theory, and women's studies at Yale, New York University, and Drew University. She is a recent recipient of a Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation Fellowship, a Writer-in-Residence Fellowship at the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, and a Fordham Faculty Research Grant. She donates her time and editing skills to a number of organizations in New Jersey and Maine, including Volunteer Lawyers for Justice. Uh, she has worked, and I find this interesting, she's worked as a caterer, cook, and personal chef on the Maine coast, uh, Martha's Vineyard, and in Charlotte's, Virginia. She lives in an old house in Montclair, New Jersey, with her husband, David Klein, and three boys, Hayden, Will, and Eli. She spends summers with extended family in an even older house on Mount Desert Island, Maine. Uh, I, before we begin, I do want to say that uh, um, I first uh, heard about Christina and her work through her mother, uh, Tina, who just recently passed uh, in January. And uh, Tina, Tina Baker and I went to the legislature together, and, and uh, we've worked with uh, a group called Portages, and that's how I learned about Christina's novel that, uh, that uh, she's written, and actually, I understand, was on the New York bestseller list for like, what, six weeks, uh, and the USA Today list for 20 weeks. Still is on there. So still is on there, all right. <laughs> so, uh, Christina, if you could tell us a bit about uh, what you do, your background, uh, you know, just, just yeah. start talking. We have plenty of time. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I grew up in Bangor, as you said, and I um, went away to college and um, ended up having a life, creating a life, as my sisters have done as well, pretty much, that enabled us to live where we live and make a living and then try to spend as much time in Maine as possible. So we... Um, all are centered on the island of Mount Desert, and we're um, in the Southwest Harbor area. My dad is in Bass Harbor, and my sisters are in Southwest Harbor and Manset. Um, and so it means that we have a little tribe of our own that we're able to kind of let all our children run around and be together in the summers and in as many holidays as we can manage. So it's lovely. I live outside of New York, but I, I'm always desperate to get home. Right. Um, so let's talk about your, your novel, The uh, Orphan Train. Yeah. Um, how did you decide to write that? Well, it was a number of different things that happened that came together. Um, as you know, Donna, you were a big influence for me in writing this novel because I have a character who is half Penobscot Indian, and um, I read... My mother actually sent me a big package of your writings uh, in the Spirit of the Eagle and a lot of stuff from the legislature, um, a lot of the work from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Bunny McBride's book, Women of the Dawn. And the more I read, the more I realized that there were real parallels between um, what has happened and has been experienced by the Wabanakis and 
what happened in the early 20th century to children, poor immigrant children who were sent on orphan trains to the Midwest. Um, Many people haven't ever heard of the orphan trains, but between 1854 and 1929, more than 200,000 children, upwards close to perhaps 250,000 children, There are not exact figures because record keeping was very spotty, but were sent on these trains from New York and uh, ports on the East Coast to the Midwest. Yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, I I hadn't heard about those orphan trains. Mm -hmm. And um, it was really uh, news to me to hear about that and and that you were writing a book on... uh, Orphan, you know, orphan. Now, that's plural, right? I mean, there's just more than one train that... Yeah, so... In 1853, a Methodist minister named Charles Loring Brace in New York City looked around and realized that there were between 10 and 30,000 children living on the streets at any given time. Actually, during that whole period, there were no social programs of any kind. There was no welfare. There were no child labor laws, no child welfare laws. Um, Children were considered property. Poor children were considered labor. So there was really no recourse if you fell between the cracks for a family and then for children in particular. Um, And these orphan trains, I'll just quickly say, were orphan train is a misnomer. Most of the children were not orphaned. Only between 30 to 40 percent of them were orphaned. Um, The rest were abandoned. They were um, runaways. They had been taken out of their homes. There were a lot of reasons that children ended up on these trains um, but most of them actually had living parents. Yeah. And were most of these, where were most of these children located? They were mostly located on the Lower East Side of New York. They were all over New York. Um, but they were also in Boston and, and uh, you know, Philadelphia and Baltimore. Um, but really most in New York. As you know, immigration was in full swing. There were, there were people flooding into the country all the time. And certain immigrant groups in particular were very vulnerable to... Um, catastrophe. The Irish, for example, were Ireland was so poor, they were in the middle of a terrible potato famine, they were being oppressed by the British, and so a community, a small village in Ireland, would often scrape together money to send one or two people over, but then that meant that the people that they sent had no support network. There weren't lots of people from that village going over right. at the same yeah. time. Yeah. So if something happened to a parent, a child was completely at a loss. And in fact, I went back to Ireland to do research and talking to villagers, I realized, and I had already read this, but it was it was sort of hit home, especially hard by talking to people, that oftentimes they would send people, they would scrape together the, mon- to the money to send someone, and they would never expect to hear from them again, and they never did hear from any of them again. So they never knew what happened necessarily to the people that came over. So other immigrant groups like the um, like Jewish groups and Italians, for example, would have larger numbers of fa- extended family coming at the same time, simply because they may have had more money to do so. And so they weren't quite as vulnerable to, to catastrophe as the Irish, although Jewish and Italian kids were on these um, trains as well, and German children and lots of lots of nationalities. But... Um, predominantly Irish. And redheaded children were especially 
loathed um, to the extent that for 10 years they weren't even allowed on the trains because they got sent back to New York. They weren't wanted. They were considered spawn of the devil and all kinds of things. And, you know, when I talk about the book uh, to school groups, talking about redheads and how they were discriminated against is a really nice way to talk about racism because it's very easy for people to see sure. how crazy that is. Yeah. So if they had red hair and were left-handed, then they were really in trouble. They were really they? in super trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and the Irish were hated. I mean, the oh, Irish yeah. were so discriminated against. They were. And I, I remember, I can't remember the year that it happened, but there was a piece of history about New York where they hung Irish mm-hmm. people. Yeah, yeah. And they weren't, they couldn't get ahead because they were in menial jobs and you know, considered stupid and incorrigible um, oxen, sort of, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm just curious. I'm part Irish, so I can Yeah, I, I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, with, this, with your Irish background, yeah. I just wonder, why isn't the teenager in the story, why isn't she Irish uh, instead of Native? What, what brought that Native piece in? Well... The, I have two children in the story. One is Irish, as you know, came from a village in Ireland and is on the orphan train. The other is um, native because of you, Donna, and because of my mother. Um, I, While I was beginning this book and doing the research on, on my orphan train story, my mother was as you know, very involved in the portaging project that she was working on. Um, She was teaching at senior college. And in fact, I have the book here, Voices Yearning to be Heard, uh, which she put together um, from with, you know, Anne Funderburg, um, but with people who had been in this portaging class with her. And she just talked about the Penobscot Indians. She talked about the Wabanaki tribe. She talked about all of that. As a matter of course, that was her passion. And as I was talking with her over and over again, I realized this is a story that is dear to my mother, dear to her heart. She sent me things to read. And, you know, I grew up in Bangor, so I knew Indian children and had grown up going to Indian Island. And um, it was a piece of my past that I had never written about. And piece of, I mean, obviously I'm not Indian, but... I did grow up in a culture where we talked about this all the time and and the issues of Indian Island were things that I knew about growing up. And so it felt familiar to me and I wanted to write about it for that reason. And also because I really wanted to show what it was like for an Indian girl to to be in a position where she was vulnerable. She was in foster care with a non-Indian family. She didn't feel that her culture was appreciated. She didn't have a link to it. Her father, who was a Penobscot, had died. And she was desperately searching for identity. Mm. Yes, and I I find it very interesting that uh, she chose to dress as goth. Yes. (laughs) Now, where'd that come from? Well, I knew that as a mother of two teens, I have an 18-year-old and a 17-year-old, and they have lots of friends trooping through the house. And I know that, and my sons aren't goth, uh, but talking to other teenagers, and uh, I'll tell you a story about it in a minute, but another story that influenced me, but um, I realized that when you assume a persona, it's armor. It's kind of a form of armor. And in the story early on, the 91-year-old woman says something like, you know, are you wearing an, is this your version of an Indian 
you know, outfit? Are you, is this a costume? She's sort of asking, is this a, and she said, I, no, that's ridiculous. I've never thought of that, about that. But truthfully, what she was doing with her goth persona was protect, was creating armor for herself against the world, against feeling that she was always vulnerable. Um, but I may, I, another thing that happened is that I ran into someone at a party one, one time who had a sleeve of tattoos. You know, he had tattoos all up his arm, on his back, and all over. He wasn't wearing a shirt. It was summer. And he had our little kids were playing together, same age. And maybe I had a, you know, glass of wine or two, so I felt emboldened to ask, what, what, why did you get tattoos? Why do you have tattoos? Why are you covered? Why do you have body art? And he said... Every tattoo on my body is the physical representation of something bad that happened to me. I was in foster care, and I felt I had a lot of pain. And I feel that by claiming, by naming and claiming it, I can dump it. You know, he said, I, I feel that I'm wearing, as armor, these experiences are the story of my life. And I've inked them on my body as a way of getting them out of my head. And I just thought that was an interesting way to describe the process of getting tattoos and what tattoos can mean to people. Hmm. So my character has a tattoo um, and ends up eventually not getting more, but that influenced me as well, and I started thinking about externalizing pain and that that's also what my character does. What was the does. tattoo? I t- In the book, it's a, it's a turtle. It's a little it's a turtle. native huh. symbol. Um, and I actually, the exact turtle, um, and I don't think I have it in the book, but I have a slide of it, is one that I found at a Bangor tattoo parlor um, at, that, I, that I actually, I think, maybe have a name in the book. <laughs> but it's got a great website, and it has this native uh, characterization of a turtle. Hmm, interesting. I, when you said that, I just thought, you know, my, my sister just celebrated her 75th birthday yesterday and uh, her uh, actually it was a july 13th is a r- real birth date but uh she she probably kill me for this but she has a, a a birthmark and it's it's a turtle oh that's amazing so i thought well that's great you know yeah um, I, is her birthmark a turtle yeah wow yeah. that is great that yeah. is great um so i loved exploring this world and i was really lucky to have my mother um, present. Um, and it, you know, my mother died, as you said, in January and working on this book and being able to talk with her about all of these things that she was exploring and learning. I mean, she was 73 when she died and, um, she spent her life exploring and was unafraid. She was fearless about exploring things she knew nothing about and jumping in with both feet and then learning everything she could. And she inspired me and gave me bravery in doing the same. Yeah. And she was also very pushy. Very pushy. <laughs> very opinionated. She, yeah. yeah. I mean, there, was, there were times when uh, I really, yeah, I didn't really want to do something. And uh, she, it's like, I think I told you the story about the, the porters and the First yeah, tell me, I, talk, talk about that. The first time I met them, uh, she had called me months before to set up a time for me to come talk to them. And she was giving a class, senior, yeah. senior class. And I, you know, I sort of just penciled it into my calendar and uh, proceeded to forget about it. And on the day I was supposed to be there, uh, she calls me up. This is, you know, she's a 
you know, at the Abbey. Yeah. I'm in Orono. And she says, uh, where are you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm at work. She goes, you were supposed to be here to talk to my class. I said, oh, geez, Tina, I'm really sorry. She goes, well, if you get in your car and start driving right now, you can make it. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. And I, you I, did. I, I did. That's amazing, and, uh, Donna. That's what started the whole Portager thing. Oh, that's really uh, amazing. You know, well, and, and because you went, yes, it became... This, this incredible project. And it was you know, very fortuitous because if I had gone and been there on time, I would have left and never heard the essays that are in that book. That's amazing. So you, and, your participation, late. Uh, yeah. <laughs> really? So, you know, I walked in and they were reading these essays and I sat there and I thought, this stuff is amazing. Yeah. This is, this, they've got it. They understand it. Well, the assignment that my mother gave her students um, is, I, I, can I read just a tiny, Sh- tiny absolutely. bit? I just want to read, first of all, Bunny McBride's description of portaging, because I, I love that, and I used it as an epigraph in my book, in Women of the Dawn. She says, and I know, Donna, you probably talk about this every week in your radio show, I don't know, but I don't mean to be repetitive, but, but in portaging from one river to another, Wabanakis had to carry their canoes and all other possessions. Everyone knew the value of traveling light, and understood that it required leaving some things behind. Nothing encumbered movement more than fear, which was often the most difficult burden to surrender. So she, she, my mother sent me that, and then I read the book, which was very helpful. And then the assignment that she gave her students is exactly the assignment that I gave my Native American character that propelled her to ask questions of the old woman in the book. So here I say, um, for this assignment, they're supposed to focus on a concept called And you're reading from your book. I'm reading from my novel now. Okay. Yeah. And so this also comes from, uh, Donna and I were just talking about the, um, that the compulsory education in schools in Maine that children need to learn about uh, the tribe. Uh, They're supposed to focus on a concept called portaging. In the old days, the Wabanakis had to carry their canoes. I say here, da-da-da. They learned to travel light. Mr. Reed tells students they have to interview someone, a mother or father or grandparent, about their own portages, the moments in their lives where they've had to take a journey, literal or metaphorical. They'll use tape recorders and conduct what he calls oral histories, asking questions, transcribing answers, and putting together the story in chronological order. The questions on the assignment sheet are these. Number one, what did you choose to bring with you to the next place? Number two, what did you leave behind? And number three, what insights did you gain about what's important? So when my character starts asking the old woman these questions, that's when the orphan train story comes out. And now when I teach writing workshops, Those are the questions I am asking in Maine as I'm talking about the book and teaching workshops. I'm going to be doing a couple in Portland for the MWPA, the Maine Writers and Publishers Alliance. I think it's actually at University of Southern Maine um, next week. But those questions are the ones. And they're so evocative, aren't they? I mean, they're the best questions to ask because everyone has... Everyone has baggage. Everyone has baggage. Everyone does. Exactly. Yeah. And everybody has journeys and they have to leave things behind and they've gained insights. And 
So I just find that it's so evocative to ask those questions. I'm right. doing that. Yeah. Cool. So I noticed that you you have the uh, the the book here yeah. that you mentioned and. Was there anything that struck you in that book that were voices yearning to be heard book? Um, to I think the thing that most struck me about the book is that the writers are not Native American. They're not right. Indian. Um, but they're all ex- exploring not only their own past, but they're also writing about the Native experience. Um, Anne Funderburg, for example, um, who I know is very involved in this, Uh, wrote Invisible um, about a Native woman. She says, we cannot see her as she really is because it makes us think of what we've done. The way we stole her land, her tribe, and tongue by treaties which were nothing but a sham creates a loss we'll never understand. And then my mother's part of the book was is about the history of women's emancipation, essentially. She talks about this famous quote from Mariel Rukeyser, who says, what would happen if one woman told the truth about her life? The world would split open. Um, and I've always loved that quote. Uh, we had the book, a book in my house growing up, was my mother's called The World Split Open. Um, and my mother says here in the 19th century, when American women struggled to gain the right to vote, a strange new phenomenon appeared, the professional woman writer. In novels, short stories, and poems, women explored themes of isolation, alienation, female sexuality, racism, and above all, the painful inequalities of male-female relationships. Um, But it really wasn't, as she says, until the late 1960s, 70s, that the second wave of the women's movement created an explosion in writing by women. Many writers who had disappeared were rescued from obscurity by writers and critics looking beyond what Hawthorne had called, quote, that damned mob of scribbling women. Suddenly, writers once lost to posterity found themselves back in print. Um, So it's about women finding their voices, and it's about honoring the past, I think. So what sort of made you become a writer or, or want to write? Well, I think my mother was a big influence because she would do things like create blank books for me to fill in um, that I that I loved and learned eventually to create narratives for. Um, my father is a historian and wrote books, so I knew that book it was possible to write a book. I think that's maybe one thing that I, I saw books being made. But nobody in my family wrote fiction. Um, and I think my dad, I, I gave a talk uh, that my dad heard once when, on this book, this novel, The Orphan Train, um, where I was crediting my mother. Also, I wrote an article about this for Mother's Day somewhere. And uh, he said, wait a minute, I'm the one who uh, would make up stories every night. He did serial stories that lasted for days and days, you know, and every night we would come back and have a new chapter and he would just make them up. And I do think he's right that that was a big influence as well. He was really creative that way. Um, But I started... I always wrote stories. I never, the issue for me and the thing I talk about when I talk to, to groups of students um, and young people is I never thought, I, I never had the confidence to believe that I could be a writer. And I think most people don't unless you've gr- grown up being told you're perfect all the time and gone to some great school where they, I don't know, made you write a lot. But in, I, de- I never imagined that I would be a writer. I actually, 
my skill is, and my only real skill is that I'm an editor. I'm a good editor. I like to edit pe- other people, and uh, I make a living from that. I, you know, I've been a writer for 20 years, and I've some years I make a living with my own writing, and this year is a nice year, and my book is doing well. But some many years I make a living as an editor, and that's what my uh, real sort of money making. Well, go job keep that in mind. What's that? I said I'll keep that in yeah. mind. Yeah. Um, so I, and I like to edit other people. And so I always thought maybe I'd be a book editor or a magazine editor and work in New York City for a publisher. But um, but I was, I was sort of nudged ahead several times. And so my lesson to my students uh, is listen to the voices that are nudging you ahead, that are giving you... Um, confidence and don't listen to the ones that aren't. It's kind of about tuning out the negative because there's going to be a lot of negative no matter what. And uh, I was fortunate to have several people sort of saying, you know, you should you should pursue this. And it can be discouraging. It's very hard to get published. It's very hard to get published by a commercial press. By a... There are lots of ways to do it these days, but when I started, there weren't very many ways to get published. And uh, I was lucky to be encouraged, but I also was tenacious. And I think that tenacity had to do with, um, you know, getting, having a little bit of my mother's personality that she just was dogged about doing, getting things done, as you know, whether it was saving an old mill in Bangor, trying to save that or to overall haul the school system or get legislation passed. You know, she was tenacious. That was, that's a word I would use to describe her. And I think she passed on some of that to me. Yeah. And it really, that's what it takes, tenacity to move forward. I mean, yeah. women are, are sort of like taught, oh, you know, don't talk about yourself. Don't talk about your accomplishments, you know. And if you don't talk about your accomplishments, who's going to know? <laughs> that's right. You know? <laughs> Except for you, and, you know. I know. Well, I, find, I still find that really hard, having a website and having to have a presence where I talk about, you know, myself. It's weird and you know you're not it's not easy you're not accustomed to doing it um and there's also a way in which it can feel like it's too much to promote yourself and that's tough to do um but you're right that men are pretty savvy oh, a absolutely. lot of times about yep. kind of getting their getting their names forward and getting recognition um and women uh need to step up you know someone this is interesting well It's interesting to me, and it really works for me. So they did a study that showed that women are terrified of public speaking in general. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are, but women really are. It's hard to get up in front of a crowd and really feel that you own the space. And they did this experiment where they showed, they took a group of women who are scared of public speaking, and they showed one group a picture of Hillary Clinton before they got up. They had to picture Hillary Clinton in their mind, and then they showed them a picture of her. And it reduced their anxiety level by, like, 90%. And I read that, and then sometimes I speak now to groups of, like, 500 people, and I used to be terrified of public speaking, and I just think of Hillary Clinton, and I stand up straighter, and I feel, you know, if Hillary Clinton can get out there all over the world and do what she's doing, I can give a talk to this darn historical society or whatever it is. Um, so I think there is something about having female role models sure. and thinking about women as powerful that's really, really important um, yeah. for us 
And, th- and then there's a thought about, you know, if you have a story yeah. and, you know, you, you may not, you may feel real shy, you might not want to tell it or whatever, but, you know, start writing, put that pencil to your paper and just start it. I'm always amazed when I teach writing workshops and actually Donna and I were in one last week at the Abbey Museum together um, that at the incredible stories that spill out. Aren't you, Donna? Like just sitting in that room of people, we don't know them at all. And they, I give them a prompt and an assignment and they start talking. And some of them I was tearing up. I mean, you're just amazed at the stories, not only the stories people have, but the eloquence with which people who don't even realize that they have that power um, can tell their stories. And I I think there were a couple people there that were amazed by those stories, you know, and I mean, they were small, but page or paragraphs. Yeah. But still, they did a really great job in in writing those and and talking about their feelings. But you had some great suggestions about those paragraphs, too. Well, that's why I love teaching writing workshops, because I think that people don't realize the power they have to tell stories. We're not a a culture that's used to it anymore, unlike perhaps the... um, I don't know, but the Wabanakis, I'm not sure. Well, you know, I Storytelling know about, traditions. Well, when you think about it, and I, I thought about this f- for a bit, storytelling. Mm-hmm. Storytelling and stories is huge. And you know why? Because you hear it all the time. Every day you turn the news on. What do you hear? Stories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You Everybody know, loves stories. Everybody has stories. I mean, at the dinner table or you, you, know, you overhear people talking, they're telling stories. Exactly. It's, it's stories. Well, and it was so fun. I thought one of the men in the group last week when we were at the Abbey said, I refuse to read fiction because I <laughs> yeah. only read nonfiction. He said, well, first of all, you know, I don't really need to be inside someone else's mind because my mind is as, interest, is as interesting as anyone's. That was a funny line. And then he said, um, and I really just want the facts. And then Donna, I think you gently pointed out, um, you know, a lot of what you read when you're reading history is may not be the facts. (laughs) First of all, it's someone's opinion. Um, And second, there are lots of ways to get at facts. There are many ways to get at facts. And my point about fiction is that a lot of things that we can't articulate in nonfiction can be articulated in poetry and fiction um, about the way people feel. And when I read a really good poem or a really incredible piece of fiction, whether it's a short story or a novel, I feel that I'm learning something about human nature on a very deep level. And that's, to me, the power um, of storytelling. Mm. And I noticed that you do teach quite a bit of of workshops, and I I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, I love to teach creative writing. Um, I, as you know, was writer in residence at Fordham for four years. um, And one of the most, uh, one of the best things I think I did that I love doing, I mean, is teaching graduate students because they're, um, they were doing creative writing theses. So they were trying to write books that may well have become and did become a book. They were writing books, essentially. Um, And being able to sort of follow them along their process was exciting. But it's equally exciting to me to just teach one-off workshops um, in various places that are filled with people who aren't sure whether they're really writers or not. In fact, most of them are not writers, Mm -hmm. but they feel that they maybe have a story to tell. Well, um, I think at some point I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to do a workshop for the the com- for our tribal community. Oh, that would be incredible! I would love to do that. I would love to do that. I think, um, you know, I've read 
well, quite a few Indian writers, but Sherman Alexie is uh, the most famous, and I don't know. I'd love to hear, you want to talk about what you feel about him? (laughs) No. (laughs) Um, But I'm reading The Roundhouse right now, and I don't know what you think about Louise Erdrich, but I do think that The Roundhouse captures humor and community and um, uh, irreverence and tradition in an interesting way, and I feel that I have a very strong sense of the Native community that she's writing about. I don't know if you've read her. What do you think? No, I, I haven't. You might want to pick it up because it's an interesting um, and very normalizing story in that it feels like she's just writing about people, and they could be any people, but they have these interesting and unique traditions and history and ways of talking to each other. Well, sure. I mean, we we have a very, uh, you might call very earthy yeah. sense of humor. Yeah, exactly. Um uh, Sometimes it's a bit off-colored, but, you know. <laughs> that's that's exactly what comes through in the book. It's really fun. Um, are there other writers that you would recommend that I, we should, that your you readers and I'm, I should? I'm interviewing here. You're not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll come back to that. Yeah, okay. I'll have to think about that one. Yeah. Um, but I did have uh, something I wanted to ask you, and it had to do with when you first got the idea yeah. for Orphan Train. Where did you get that idea? Well, that's a really good question. My um, About a decade ago, I was visiting my in-laws in Fargo, North Dakota, of all places, and we were there in the winter, and it was a huge snowstorm, as usual, <laughs> and we were stuck inside. And my 8-year-old son stumbled on this book that was a centennial celebration of Jamestown, North Dakota, a little teeny town where my mother-in-law is from. And my mother-in-law came over and said, Carol came over and said, Hayden, you might be interested in this story. The title of the story was, uh, it's a newspaper story called, they called it Orphan Train, and it provided a home for many children on the prairie. And she turned a page and said, this is my father and his brother, and here are their three sisters. And that was the first I, or anyone, my husband even, had heard of the orphan trains. And in fact, it wasn't until my mother-in-law saw the article that she had ever heard of the orphan trains either. She knew that her father was an orphan and his siblings, um, and they'd come on a train to Jamestown, but she did not know any of this. And in fact, as it turns out, her father was not on an official orphan train because they came from Missouri, another place, you know, not from New York. So the official orphan trains came from the East Coast. But he was on a train, and there were children sent all over the United States at that time period on trains um, to be taken in by families or to be indentured, essentially. Um, In fact, literally indentured. They were called indentured. Most of them were not adopted. Um, And so they ended up in this town of Jamestown, North Dakota, and her father was 15, so he was too old to be taken in. He was on his own. And the other siblings were younger. And uh, and so that's what started me on the journey. I began researching it. I did two other novels and a nonfiction book in the meantime, uh, but I kept throwing notes in a file, and I kept looking things up and sort of paying attention and cutting newspaper articles out of the paper and things like that. I had a three ring, I created a three ring binder, started filling it with stories. Um, and that I found first person stories of people who'd been on the trains. And that was where the orphan train part of my story came from. And as I said, the, the Indian part came from my conversations with my mother and then all the materials I started reading and, um, learning about. But, 
uh, the orphan train journey for me took quite a long time. And it ended up taking me, I went to Ireland to the small village that my character comes from. And the reason I had her come from this small village outside of Galway in uh, on the west coast of Ireland is that Kinvara had the largest number of immigrants to the United States in the period that I'm writing about. Um, and then I went to Minnesota, and I went to a number of orphan train reunions. There were, as I mentioned at the beginning, there were between 200 and 250 train riders, but there are now more than 2 million descendants. Wow. And they are... Um, very vocal, very involved in getting the word out about what happened to their relatives. So more and more you'll be hearing about these train riders. Um, the train riders themselves were ashamed, most of them, of what had happened to them, so they didn't talk about it. And the other thing is that many of them, most of them, almost all of them, felt that they thought that they were on the only train. So they didn't have a community. They had no way of Organizing, They had no way of meeting other people who'd been on trains. They did not know there were others who'd been on trains until reunions started being organized. Uh, the first one was in 1960, and then over the years, they learned more and more that there were other people. But truthfully, and this is just a typical thing that happens in generation, the first generation didn't really want to talk about it. They didn't. They kept it secret. But when their children and grandchildren started asking questions and really started writing things down and doing research, the older people began coming around and started opening up. And I think that happens. Yeah, it does. In fact, I was doing an event last night, and a woman said that her parents were Holocaust survivors, and that's true of them as well, that many Holocaust survivors didn't really talk about their experience. And it wasn't until their children and grandchildren started doing research and finding things out and that and began really asking questions that they started asking, that they started talking about what had happened to them. Hmm. It's strange. I mean, there's a, a certain generation, I think, uh, I don't know if it's the World War II generation or generations prior to that, but they just, they never did. Everything was a secret. Everything they did was a secret. And Well... That's right, and that's what my book is about, these secrets that were kept. Um, but children who rode on the orphan trains were told never to talk about it. They were told, they, so they were taken in by one of two big orphanages in New York, the ones from, who came from New York, which is most of them, and they were stripped of their identities. Their birth certificates were either destroyed, locked up, or altered. They often didn't have birthdays that they even knew. They didn't even know what day they were born, most of them, because they were yet too young or had been on the streets, didn't have any proof of anything. A lot of them didn't have birth certificates. Um, and they were stripped of their... They, they, had to, they were given new clothes. They weren't allowed to bring anything with them. Uh, they weren't allowed even to bring a slip of paper with an address of a relatives in the old country or their... Some of them had notes from parents, like, you know, please contact me when I can afford to keep you again, and they were taken away. I, when I did research at New York Public Library, I found an archive of letters that mothers and fathers had written to their children that were never delivered to them because the children weren't allowed to have anything. And they were told, you have to start now. Your lives start now. Don't remember anything from the past. And, you know, the truth is, as one train rider told me, Every child who was on that train was there because they had experienced great trauma and had been 
had some horrific experience. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been there. So these children were not only uh, forced to keep their past quiet. Most of them had experienced things that now would require a lot of therapy. And, of course, they were never given therapy. And they also were never allowed to talk about it. So that's a lot of repression that you have to live with. Hmm. Yeah, it kind of, it does remind me a lot about the, uh, the, the, uh, how native kids foster were care. foster care and, and the, uh, and the, the schools, the residential schools they were forced to go to, you know, the taking know. away of the, the identity and. It's so uh, similar. Yeah. There are so many parallels. Um, there was a wonderful NPR series last fall about Minnesota, uh, native um, exactly the same thing, tribes that, that this sort of thing happened routinely that they were taken out of native homes and put in, you know, specifically put in white homes and not allowed to maintain any trace of their pasts. But, you know, I, in thinking about this, I've, I wonder what kind of paradigm did the, did the majority culture have towards children in general? Right. Well, you know, the truth is, it's, it's children in general, but it's really poor children. It's poor, the disenfranchised. So it's, so it's the economic. It's purely economic. Yeah. Children were idolized and idealized if they were wealthy at this time period. And they were seen as pure labor if they were poor. They were nothing but labor. And they worked in factories, as you know, worked to death, lived on the streets. They were invisible. They were invisible. And there were no laws. There were no. There was no welfare. There was no foster care. There was nothing. So they were just at the mercy of individuals, and most individuals looked right through them. Hmm. You know, it's hard to imagine, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, saw them as less than human, essentially. And you have to keep in mind, a lot of these children were new immigrants, so they didn't go to school. They weren't in school. They, many of them, didn't speak English or they had very strong accents, they looked different, they were dirty, of course, because they were, you know, not, they were ill-kept and they were living on the streets. And so they were seen as lesser than and other. And the wealthy white families looked at these children as urchins, street urchins. You know, if you go to India today, you see a similar situation. Children living on the streets and people ignoring it. The caste system. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So poor children, and that would be native children too, were not seen yeah, as yeah. fully. Yeah, human. But it's, you know, it's just not as you point out. It's just not only native children uh, in America. It's it's poor children all over the world. All over, all over the world. And you know, there are many equivalents to the orphan train story in other other countries. Lots of them. In fact, there's a wonderful movie right now uh, that came out two years ago, and I saw it on Netflix. It's called. Oranges and Sunshine, and it stars Emily Watson as a crusader. She, so as a woman who uncovered something huge in, in England and that went on until the early 1960s. Poor children were taken from their homes, um, taken off the street, but also taken from their homes, put on boats to Australia and sent to workhouses until 1960s, until the 1960s. And Emily Watson plays a woman who was got, was got received a letter from one of these children who'd grown up saying, "I this happened to me, and I've been trying to get in touch with the government to figure out, what, like, can I trace my parents? What can I do? And they won't even acknowledge that it happened. The British government denied that they had done this, and it was a government program. 
Emily Watson's character uncovers the cover-up and gets restitution for these children. What's the name of that again? It's called Oranges and Sunshine, and you must see it. It's a true story. And at the end of the movie, the real woman comes on and talks about what she did. It's amazing. So I totally recommend it. But that's just one example of many. I mean, let's not even talk about Aboriginal children in Australia and Aboriginal tribes in general. Um, There's also kinder transport. There were children sent north from England that never were reunited with families um, in World War II. Um, Children were sent on on trains all over Europe. Um, And today, of course, in um, third world countries, I mean, God, think about Rwanda and think about other uh, African countries where children are on the run, Somalia, you know? Mm. So it's, it's an ongoing story in a way. Um, but I think what shocks people about the orphan train story is that it happened in America where you think we're, right. where people think we're more civilized than that. And uh, that it, there were so many children over 200,000, and then it went on for 75 years. That's what shocks people. That is shocking, 75 years. And let me tell you one more shocking thing. When I was um, researching the story, I I was trying to figure out why it started in 1854 and why it ended in 1929. And there are a lot of reasons that it started in 1854. You know, this minister was really intent on getting children into good Methodist families out in the Midwest. It was sort of a fresh era fund uh, with an evangelical twist idea. Um, he also, uh, at the time, as you know, the Civil War was raging, and uh, we don't think of it much, but there were many vulnerable war widows in northern states who lost their children uh, or couldn't take care of them. So many children went into went went onto the streets and into orphanages, who were, were children of men who died in the Civil War. Also, slavery was ending and there was a need for labor. That's boldly stated in several places that in many cases these children replaced slaves. Um, But it still didn't explain the whole thing and it didn't explain to me why it ended in 1929. Roosevelt didn't enact national legislation for children to protect children until 1937. So finally, I came across an academic paper that was very critical of the orphan train movement and it was really looking at what had happened and I discovered the real reason. Um, In 1854, the railroads were massively expanding to the Midwest, and they were building depots in places where no one lived, and they wanted to populate those places. And so they paid for the passage of these children to go to the Midwest. And in 1929, they decided that the West was full. And they didn't need to pay anymore. Well, they didn't need corporate influence. So it was a hundred percent economic. Yeah, yeah, Isn't that yeah, amazing? Yeah, yeah. So uh, without the railroads paying, and without the railroads stopping paying, the orphan train movement would not have begin begun and ended when it did. Wow, who who would have thought of that? You know, I I, I never thought never entered my mind yeah. about the the railroads. Right? Who would know? Who would yeah. know? And uh, also that they would be so canny to think, well, we've got all these kids, you know, who are going to provide labor. They're going to go out to the Midwest. They're going to be centered around these depots, and we're going to have business on top of everything else. (laughs) You know, know, and and I don't know. Sometimes I think socialism isn't so bad. (laughs) (laughs) 
And you know, the funny thing is, a lot of those kids would have died. They would have ended up in jail, in prostitution. The situation in New York was untenable. It was awful. Um, and I think when I, you know, when you talk to train riders today, and by the way, when I began the book, there were about 150 living, and now there are about less than 25 living train riders in the country. Mm. Um, but when you talk to them, they they say that ultimately they're glad that it happened to them because they ended up, most of them, fairly stable. Train riders went on to have, in general, have stable lives. They Partly because they went into very calm, placid communities. Most of them did not come back to the East Coast. They stayed in the Midwest. They took care of their families there, and they, they, lived, their, they lived out their lives there. Um, this would never happen today, and we consider it horrifying. Mm -hmm. But uh, the people who went on these trains some of them at least ended up maybe with a better life mm -hmm. so it's a paradox yeah well yeah i mean you always you know they say make make lemonade out of lemons that's and, exactly right you know that's exactly uh, right so if you had uh, one last thought what would that be a quote or anything you got about a minute i think or so okay um i think that what i'm trying to do in this book is to look at the way the disenfranchised find voice in the world and people who are silent find ways to speak. Um, and it happens in every culture, but for poor people, for people who are marginalized, um, I think the real, for me, the message is if you find voice, you'll find people who can listen, who will be able to listen. And it's about having the courage to speak up. And with both of my characters, the native character and the uh, immigrant character, when they find voice, they are freed of mm. the burdens. Yeah, and I, there's one thought when I, read, when I read your book, and I think I've mentioned it to you. I think that, uh, I think the, 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 the native character still has some more living to do there and experiences to go through yeah. so i kind of hope you might follow up on that at some point i will definitely uh, so anyway thank you uh christina for being here um thank you for having me yeah and uh i want to thank uh, i want to thank you again uh we have a special guest here uh novelist christina baker klein um and uh, tune in again next month for another webinar windows thank you donna